Back on episode 103 of the Future of Agriculture podcast, I spoke with Michael Doan of the Nature Conservancy about conservation and agriculture. We specifically talked about the Rethink Soil Initiative launched in 2016 with the goal of prioritizing soil health on over 50% of row crop farms by 2025. By our calculus, there's something less than 10% of, of cropland area that are managed, you know, optimally for soil health, where they're doing these practices or, you know, some version of these practices and really uh, thinking about this, the health of the soils as a primary objective in their, in their operation. 16 months after that interview to accelerate their progress toward their goal, the Nature Conservancy hired a director of agriculture innovation to invest in early stage companies that can help to scale these soil health practices. They filled that role with another former podcast guest, Renee Vasilos, who you heard from back in episode 157, where we talked about farmer adoption of new technology. When you get it right, farmers will adopt quickly. And so I just don't think that we've had solutions that have hit the mark. These two previous episodes converge today as Renee Vasilos joins me for another interview, this time as Director of Agriculture Innovation at the Nature Conservancy to describe their efforts to invest in companies they hope can help scale these regenerative practices. Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. You may have noticed a brand new intro. I'm curious about what you think about that. If you missed the old one or if you like the little teaser at the beginning, I'm always looking for ways to mix things up and always looking for feedback from you. So feel free to let me know via email or Twitter, whatever you want. Um, my name is Tim Hamrich. Every week I get to sit down with the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. With all the talk out there about regenerative agriculture and soil health, the vast majority of acres, at least in row crops here in the United States, are not farmed with practices like planting cover crops or minimizing tillage or diversifying rotations or incorporating livestock. For organizations like the Nature Conservancy that really want to see both soil conservation and farmer profitability, a key to expanding adoption of these practices are tools to make soil health a seamless part of a farming operation with a positive return on investment for the farmer. And that's the job in part of today's guest, Renee Vasilos. Renee manages the Nature Conservancy's investments in innovative companies that will help scale regenerative agriculture production practices. Prior to joining TNC, she spent nearly a decade at John Deere, followed by leading her own consulting firm, Banyan Innovation Group, which advised growth stage agriculture technology startups and investors. And that's where she was when we first heard from her back in episode 157 in 2019. If you haven't heard of the Nature Conservancy before, they're a global environmental nonprofit working to create a world where people and nature can both thrive. They have a strong reputation for working with both private and public partners, including people like farmers and agribusinesses, to find practical and sustainable solutions to conserve the lands and waters of which all life depends. Since joining TNC a couple of years ago, Renee has led investments in seven different early stage agricultural companies, four of which you've actually heard about if you've been listening to the show for very long. Those four are Grower's Edge, Swarm Farm Robotics, Centera, and Vince. I'll link to each of those previous episodes in the show notes if you want to go back and learn more about any of those. The other three companies will be new to the show, so I've asked Renee to tell us a little bit about each of them during today's episode. 
Renee and I also talk about how they're measuring and evaluating the impact of their investments related to their ability to get closer to the soil health goals. And also this chicken or the egg problem of whether the tools can change farming practices or if a mindset has to change first with the farmer to seek out the right tools for those practices. That's toward the end of the episode. And Renee and I disagree maybe slightly on which has to come first. To start our episode, though, Renee catches us up a little bit from the last time you heard from her back in 2019. So actually, Tim, if you remember our first conversation, a lot of it was around my observations on where early stage capital was going. I was a little underwhelmed or at least felt that I could identify some areas that I thought required early stage capital and I didn't see it going to those places. And so my interest really peaked to get a seat at the investor table. I was incredibly interested in having a seat at the investor table and figuring out how I could actually start influencing where early stage capital was going. And this opportunity, I mean, this is one for, you could share it with anyone in the audience that has kids or if you're in school, I literally could never have made up this job. I could never have imagined that the role that I have now exists. And so what it is, is my title is Director of Agriculture Innovation for the Nature Conservancy. And what I get to do is manage a pool of venture capital that we are investing. I call it venture as a service. So I work in service to our North American agriculture team, and we are looking for early stage tech and innovative solutions that we believe will get us closer to our soil health building goals. So here I am at the investor table. I mean, impact is my mandate. Like that is the first filter. And that's exactly what I wanted. And I couldn't have dreamed that this role existed. And in fact, it is the first time that it has existed within the Nature Conservancy. And I've done a little, you know, research. I believe it is still quite unusual for a major nonprofit to be doing something like this. Absolutely. Yeah. This really can probably take up the entire episode with this one question. How do you measure impact? You know, if you were a venture capital investor and impact minded, that would be one thing like, okay, we want to invest in things we think have a net positive impact on the environment. But ultimately, we still got to make returns, right? We need to make sure that we have big exits that produce uh, money for our LPs. For you, you're in a little bit of a different situation. So how do you measure that? Yeah. So what we had to do was, as again, your audience and you know very well, impact and particularly in agriculture, like the opportunities are enormous. And so what we really had to do, because I actually churned on this for the first six months in the role was a lot of heartburn around, how are we going to get to the impact and the measurement? There's been a tremendous body of work within the Nature Conservancy around what's required to build soil health. And so of the research that exists today, much of which the Nature Conservancy has actually contributed to, but the research has been done around some of the critical practices we know build soil health. And it's not to say that these are the only practices or that even that every farm operation, these are relevant for, but it is, they are the most studied. So we're looking for technologies or innovative solutions or business models that will help scale acres under cover crop, increase rotations, acres under minimal till, no till, and input optimization. And so we're looking for companies that will scale one or a multitude of those practices. And it's still challenging. So I will say that when I started, I called the friends that I'd made in the venture space and said, okay, great. How are you measuring impact? 
And they said, well, why don't you call us back when you have it figured out? And so this is actually something that is a challenge. But at the Nature Conservancy, and generally, we feel so passionately that we will never reach our audacious soil health building goals if we do not tap into this early stage tech and innovation ecosystem. So as we become more sophisticated with figuring out how to tie back the actual quantitative measurements, we still felt the need to continue forward in identifying these solutions and supporting them. And I think for some context, let's kind of talk about the Nature Conservancy's historic commitment to soil health. I know when Michael Doan was on at episode 103, he talked about Rethink Soil, which is an initiative that by 2025, the Nature Conservancy wanted to see at least half the corn, soy, and wheat optimized for soil health, which uh, maybe we could define exactly what that means. But ultimately, you know, they'd been working on this. Did this come from like, all right, maybe we're not making as much progress towards that goal as we want. We need to boost the technology side of things or maybe connect those dots. Tim, you're exactly right. This work had been building, but kind of uh, really hit its stride in 2016. And I was brought in in 2019 because there was exactly this recognition that if we were to reach that audacious goal, which is quite audacious, we could not do it with status quo solutions. And we had to start engaging in the technology and innovation space to help get us there and to help move the needle further, faster. So it was exactly tied to that. And I will also just say it continues to be in complement to a tremendous other body of work. And, and that's why I call it my work is like is still a service to the folks that are working on the ground. We have a policy team that's very active. We have our scientists that continue to build up the agronomic and the economic case for soil health. So all of that work continues. And this is kind of a complement and in service to that work. So as you went down that process of understanding what impact meant for you as an investor, I imagine it had to align with this impact as it comes to soil health. So if we're going to get to 50% of the corn, soy, wheat, embracing soil health building practices, how do we measure that part of it? I mean, how do we measure, well, here, the simple question is, how do we measure regenerative agriculture? Well, it is not a simple question. That's probably why you... I didn't say it was a simple answer. <laughs> yeah, the simple, yes. And I, I, I appreciate so much because you're constantly challenging folks to get to this. And I would say, I don't believe that there is yet a definition or a way to measure regenerative agriculture because it's so nuanced. This is what's particularly challenging, right? We work in a agriculture system that has become incredibly optimized and it's hyper efficient. And doesn't really allow for the nuance that's required in a regenerative system. And so the way we're looking at the impact, again, is to, and not to say that there isn't a lot of important things, but to focus on what the research suggests about practices we know deliver on building soil health. And so that's where we've gotten to, is a focus on scaling those practices that we do know build soil health. But again, you know, Cover crops actually don't work in every system or in every year. You know, that's the other challenge. And so we do recognize that it's not to suggest that these are solutions for all and the only way to get there, but we have to start somewhere. There's sufficient data around these practices, and we know that if we can scale them for where it made sense, we will start to see improvements in soil health. 
Yeah. And that is one thing I've always appreciated about the nature conservancy is very data driven. Like, okay, let's start with the science and build from there, not starting with advocacy and trying to find the science to support it. I think that, you know, really speaks volumes to the work that you do. So as you came on to sort of invest in these early stage technologies, had the Nature Conservancy been a venture capital investor before in other capacities or was that a new initiative? They have not. This is a new initiative. We had a very progressive donor, well, and complemented by our team who recognized that we have an audacious challenge in front of us in goal. And so also it's also backed up by data around the R&D budgets, I recently did, I pulled the 2019 R&D budgets for Corteva, John Deere, and I should have my other statistic and I can't remember, three of the major incumbents for 2019. I use that because 2020 is such an outlier. So use 2019 is less than what has been invested in early stage ag tech based on the ag funder report. And so when you imagine the importance of the technology and innovation space, it's really growing. I mean, I'd like to see it be more. And I talked about that during our first podcast about how I think the incumbents need to be playing more. But it has an important and growing importance role in driving change, innovation and movement in agriculture industry. And so it also felt that because of that growing importance, we needed to also be in that conversation. And this was the way the investor community, I'm realizing now because they're incredibly busy, <laughs> it's it's harder than I thought on this side of the table, but you have to be at the table to influence that there's just so much noise and so much that's going on that it's absolutely critical to actually be sitting at the table. And as we see that growing importance for the amount of dollars that are being spent and the influence it can have on incumbents, it was also another motivator for us to have a seat at the table. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And so you have, I know, announced some investments in, in this round, but it's not really like, or is it? Do you, is this considered like one fund like a traditional VC would have? No, it's not. So yeah, it might be interesting for folks to learn about that. So we're investing in individual companies. So when we see a company that we think is interesting, we may invest in them. And we do that through iSelect, which is based out of St. Louis, because they have an evergreen structure. So they're raising capital for each deal. And so we are one of their clients. If there's a potential opportunity that we think passes our impact filters, diversity, equity, inclusion, and our risk and unattended consequence filters, then we can invest alongside their other investors. So while the deals are non-concessionary, the first filter, if you are managing a fund, would be returns on the total fund. But for our work, the first filter remains impact. So we are actually looking at each deal individually for its impact and not managing to returns on a total fund. It just changes incentives, right? So, so the way we're incentivized is in fact on impact and not generating a portfolio that hits specific return targets. Okay. And you've made uh, six investments so far, seven investments? Seven investments so far, yes. And then with this current tranche of capital, we have room for two additional companies and we're building out our phase two strategy now. Okay. Well, I recognize some names. They've been on the podcast from, I don't know if I saw the seventh yet, but at least from the list of the first six, Grower's Edge, uh, my buddy Dan Cosgrove has been on here before. Sentara was a part of two of our episodes on Tech Enable Advisor this year. Swarm Farm was part of our robotics roundtable. And Vince was uh, an episode with my friend Jeanette Barnard, who you also are good friends with. So definitely great to see some of those names. Maybe talk about in the context of like, okay, these investments are going to help us get closer to this rethink soil 
soil initiative. They're going to help us build healthier soils. Like maybe connect some of those dots of where you think this impact is really going to be felt. Yeah. So I'd love to talk about maybe a few that you didn't mention. So thrilled that you have them on your podcast. So that's awesome. One that you didn't mention is Kula Bio. So they're outside of Boston. It's a technology coming out of Harvard. They are looking to disrupt the Haberbosch synthetic nitrogen fertilizer process. They believe that they are getting close to what would be a 100% replacement for a synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. That, of course, would be extraordinary, right? But in addition to that, and of particular interest was as we look at the challenges that exist in the ecosystem around what happens often is over application of nitrogen fertilizer or fall application of nitrogen fertilizer. There's a tremendous amount of data around that not being the optimal choice from an agronomic perspective, an economic perspective, and then an environmental perspective. Yet it continues to happen. And again, we have a team on the ground. And, and what we understand is part of that is a logistics challenge. It's abundant and cheap in the fall. And if you are mitigating risks and that is the situation, then you will continue to apply in the fall. And so one of the other things that Kula is working on is they believe they can get the cost so low that you would be able to set up bioreactors on farm. And so the idea that we could disrupt the distribution channel, which we recognize is one of the challenges to truly adjusting practices at scale in terms of nitrogen management, that could be extraordinary. The implications of that could just be extraordinary. Very cool. Okay, so that's Kula Bio. Uh, maybe let's go through another one. Yeah, so um, Pattern Ag is another company that we invested in, a soil microbiome analysis company, which I suspect somebody in the audience may have groaned when they heard that because <laughs> they've heard it before. Uh, one of the reasons that we thought Pattern was particularly differentiated was they started with the so what. So they started with, how can we identify pest and disease pressures in corn and soybeans and provide that information in the fall so that farm enterprises can actually take advantage when making purchasing decisions, right? Often we see that you're getting information after you've already made your purchasing decisions. And then there's the chance that despite the information that you're getting, that you'll just go ahead and, and take action on what you had already purchased and made plans around. And so by actually providing information in a timely manner to influence before purchasing decisions are made, we thought that was incredibly compelling. Also, what they're doing, and so this is further down the pike, but part of their product development roadmap is to be able to build the platform to test the efficacy of biologicals more generally. So this, to us, made a lot of sense. Again, I, you and your audience have heard of, about a lot of new biological solutions that are coming up. We felt from the Nature Conservancy, it didn't necessarily make sense for us to pick winners there. We believe there's some promise there and could be some great solutions. But where we thought it made sense for us to engage is in a platform that can test efficacy more broadly, that that was just an incredibly compelling opportunity to advance that space and not be in a position of attempting to pick winners, which is very challenging. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, whereas with with maybe a chemical input, you could just say, okay, here's what I applied. Here is the yield and evaluate a decision based on that information. But biologicals are going to be a lot more dynamic and it may work. It may not work. But finding out the reasons in between are going to be just as important. So that's interesting. 
Yeah, exactly. So I wanted to share just a different play. So another company that we invested in is Stony Creek Colors. And this, I don't know how many of your audience are kind of in the Mississippi Delta region, but this is a company coming out of Nashville, a brilliant woman who has started this company, um, actually build the entire demand side of the equation for indigo as a natural dye. And she's been working from seed genetics all the way through the dry leaf extraction technology to introduce a profitable soil health building rotational crop for farmers. And again, her initial focus is in the Mississippi Delta, former tobacco acres. And so everyone talks about introducing rotations. Well, the reality of that is it is enormous undertaking because of the post-harvest space, right? The aggregation, the processing, the marketing, that side of the equation is a tremendous amount of work. And we saw that what Sarah Bellos at Stony Creek Colors had developed was in fact that entire system from the CGNX all the way through the demand. So drop-in replacement for synthetic indigo dye in factories in China for the jeans that everybody is wearing. And so this was one where it was really a signal around what's truly required if we think we're going to be introducing all types of new crops into the rotation, that there's just an incredible body of work that's required to make that happen. And so I will say there was a little heartburn internally because while we it is an incredible solution, the total amount of acreage it will ever achieve will be relatively small. But because there are so few solutions like this where you're really, really introducing a profitable alternative rotation. We thought it was critical to signal around this by investing in Stony Creek Colors and supporting that important work. Yeah, I'm so glad you shared this example because this is something I thought a lot about. When it comes to regenerative agriculture, you know, the truth is to have more biological based solutions, you're probably going to need more diverse crop rotations. And that opens up a can of worms that I think a lot of people don't want to address because that's hard. I mean, moving people off of a corn soybean rotation in the Midwest, like that's laughable at this point. But I think ultimately it's going to have to not be so laughable. So getting people to, to include indigo in their rotations, probably not the answer, but perhaps it's a model of how we set up these new supply chains around, you know, growing new crops. Exactly. And that's what we believe that that team has done is really done the work to build that entire ecosystem, including retrofitting existing combine equipment to be able to harvest the indigo, right? Like that's what we're really talking about. It is just an incredible ecosystem required if you are to introduce a new rotation. So to your point, moving off of corn and soybean rotation, but even just introducing an additional rotation is also just incredibly challenging because of how hyper-efficient the system has become to support corn and soybeans. What we were so encouraged by what Sarah Bellos has done with Stony Creek Colors is to do all of that tremendous hard work that's required if you're really introducing a viable alternative. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you even look at things like hemp and legumes that that have got a lot of attention about you know plant-based proteins and, of course, everything along with hemp and CBD. Still, there's a lot of challenges, a lot of challenges in post-harvest. Yeah, exactly. I was on a panel a few weeks ago, and one of the questions was, you know, what companies aren't you seeing or, or what solutions aren't you seeing? And it's exactly in that space that we just have not seen much in the way of innovation and creative solutions, which exactly to your point, if we expect to see 
a transition at any type of scale, it will require innovations around aggregation, processing, storage, and we we haven't seen very much in that space yet. And I know the Nature Conservancy has worked very closely with private companies and farmers over the years. So are you offering, you know, with these companies that you're investing in, are you also sort of helping them facilitate growth or connections in some way? Or is it, you know, really just like you believe in the cause, you believe the impact they can have. And so here you want to be a part of giving them money. Yeah. So the objective of this work was multifold. One of the objectives is to signal to other investors, right? To just signal where we recognize because of the boots on the ground knowledge that we have and the science team that we have that built and helped develop the thesis where we're actually investing was to signal to others in this increasingly frothy space around where we believe, based on our knowledge, where the status quo is in getting us there and where we need innovation and tech solutions to drive the the changes that we seek. So that's one goal that that's actually been working very well. The impact oriented goal. So to your point around like, how do we actually engage? That's been more challenging because we have a constraint in terms of human resources to actually be able to work with the teams. But I will share a great example that I think maybe is three weeks old, uh, but we worked with Growers Edge, who, you know, Dan Cosgrove, to design a warranty specifically to de-risk the adoption of cover crop practices. So where we had bandwidth and the startup, because also, as you know, because you've spoken with enough at this point, they're also sometimes constrained, right? So sometimes it's just they're in a place where they have to execute a certain part of their roadmap or get to some solutions. Um, Growers Edge had the bandwidth and we have the bandwidth to work together to develop this really important solution to get after the impact that we seek. So it depends what we're able to do. So are you covering the cost of the, the cover crop seed or how do you de-risk cover crops? So Growers Edge is introducing warranties. So we've helped co-design a warranty that based on historical production practices guarantees a minimum yield, even with the introduction of a new production practice, which in this case is cover crop. Okay. So the warranty is on the primary crop if they also incorporate cover crops. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Gosh, you know, I think one takeaway from from this episode for me is just you're doing kind of the hard work of sustainability, the, the messy, the messy work of sustainability of like, okay, yes, we can write articles, we can do podcasts, we can talk about this stuff. But like, it doesn't really matter unless it actually happens on the farm level. So I'm just curious, you know, you have been around the industry from a lot of different vantage points. What keeps you optimistic here that you know, these companies will not only be successful because all of them have solid theses and reasons that they'll be successful. And I hope that they are. But ultimately, at the end of the day, that it actually moves the needle on the impact that you and the Nature Conservancy want to have. Yeah, that's a great question. As you could tell, normally I always have an answer. Now I'm kind of quiet because I think what we really believe is is to your point, this is very hard work and we don't believe that there is a silver bullet solution. And that's kind of reflected in the portfolio, right? We are looking at like kind of across a fintech company, a, a dye company, right? Focused on indigo, autonomous tractor company, robots really, because we don't think there's a silver bullet solution. And we're looking, right, the silver buckshot that, that folks talk about, that that we don't think that there is going to be one solution. And we have to just keep looking at and understanding what the challenges are on the ground and trying to figure out 
how we can support solutions and innovations that can help in a cost-effective way, scale the changes that we seek. And so I think that this is a good reflection kind of in a portfolio form or, you know, like exciting startup form of what everyone on the ground does every day of, you know, let's try this. You know, we also have challenges with equipment solutions. We also have challenges with the finance solutions that exist. And so it is real reflection of, of what's happening on the ground every day and, yeah, just again, a, a real acknowledgement that there isn't a one-size-fit-all solution here, and we must continue to engage if we're going to help facilitate profitable changes. I heard you interviewed on another podcast, and I agreed with your answer about the biggest barriers to regenerative agriculture happening, which uh, you said were policy, education, and tools. I know nothing about policy. I'm not going to pretend to have a halfway intelligent conversation about that, but I'd certainly agree that that's going to have to be part of it because we're all in this and, and it affects all of us. But um, we've obviously focused so far on tools. What about the education part? I'm of the opinion that the best tools in the world are only useful to the person with the right mindset and the tools can help with the mindset, but the mindset has to be a part of it. You know, what's happening out there that in that regard that this won't just be like us showing up and say, hey, this is a really good tool, but there is no silver bullet. So it's not going to solve all your problems, but it's a really good tool. And them saying, okay, this fits into my thought process, my overall mindset. You know, what what's happening out there that might help in that regard? So I would flip that and say, I think the education, actually, I don't remember which one you're referencing, but I would say the education burden lies on the entrepreneur's. Because what I continue to see is that many times solutions are developed for early adopters. You know, you have the, there's a traditional bell curve conversation around adoption. And if you are designing solutions for early adopters, it does not meet what the majority of producers need to be able to incorporate it in their system. And so I think when, again, I don't know what I was referencing, but in the context of innovation and tools and technology, I think the education burden lies with those that are designing these tools so that they are actually something that would fit into the vast majority of operations in an easy and profitable way. That to me is incredibly important. And I continue to see that solutions as you can imagine, I see a lot of solutions coming my way and just continually see a lack of understanding about the majority of farm enterprises that exist and designing solutions that fit, that are easy button and can be easily incorporated into existing systems is really important. I, yeah, I think that's definitely a positive way to look at it. The inner cynic in me that I always try to beat down and shut up and bury would say that the big part of that bell curve are people who have been able to be sold silver bullet solutions for their problems in the past decades. And that's what they're wanting. And as we've talked about, those silver bullet solutions for something as big as as soil health or regenerative agriculture likely don't exist. So anyway, what I've noticed, because I do another podcast on soil health, and I've noticed like those that are on board, there's no stopping them. They're going to find a way. Like something has changed in their mindset that they're going to find a way, they're going to find tools, or if the tools don't exist, they're going to make their own. And those are probably your early adopters. It's hard to find 
enough of those people, you know, to kind of have that spread to a, a larger part of the bell curve. So anyway, I don't want to end on a cynical note, though. <laughs> well, but so, Tim, but so that's exactly my point is that we have to meet them where they are. They need easy button solutions. We've got to get there. And you use those early adopters to help develop and design solutions, right? I, I come back to the iPhone. Like my mother was not the initial target, but those that were early adopters helped to make the iPhone what it is today, which is in fact a giant easy button. And the same is true for these solutions. And we have to meet the customers where they are. We can't expect that Again, one of your earlier questions around how much behavior change do you anticipate, right? As you look at the portfolio of companies, how much behavior change do you anticipate? And it has to be minimal and for sure profitable, whatever you're trying to introduce. Not suggesting that it's going to be easy, <laughs> that, this, that this is actually incredibly challenging. Not because it is easy, but because it is hard, I believe is how the quote goes. Thank you so much to Renee Vasilos for being on today's show. I'm so glad to see an organization like the Nature Conservancy investing in agricultural innovation as a part of their conservation efforts. Very cool. You can learn more about the work they're doing over at their website, nature.org. Quick announcement and request. I'm doing a series in 2022 called Farm Strategies. And I'd like to speak with commercial scale farmers whose strategic approach to building their business is taking them in new directions that may look a little bit different from many of their neighbors or peers. And that could be in growing new crops, maybe finding new markets, maybe adopting a new farming or ranching approach, anything along those lines. If you've got leads on good stories like this, please send them to me. Uh, you can do so via email. I'm at tim at aggrad.com. Thank you so much for your time and your attention. I never take it for granted. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.